Hello and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and M&A in Canada. My name is Mario Negro. I'm a partner in the M&A and Private Equity Group at Steichman Elliott. For today's special guest, I'd like to welcome Sean Nalen. Sean is a fellow partner in the corporate group of the Toronto office of Steichman Elliott. And Sean focuses his practice on economic sanctions, anti-money laundering, anti-corruption, and national security. Sean, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Mario. Great to be on your podcast today. Sean, I, I always start by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about themselves. And uh, and obviously, your practice is a unique practice. So I'd lo- love to hear more about your story and your practice. Well, thanks for that, Mario. Uh, I'd say my practice revolves around national security in a lot of ways. I mean, I've done litigation. I've worked on many transactions over the years. Uh, but one of the common themes in it has been national security, whether that's economic sanctions or national security reviews under the Investment Canada Act. But increasingly these days, uh, anti-corruption and uh, anti-money laundering law also have national security dimensions. So they all have a different focus, but uh, in a way they all tie back to national security. And certainly we're seeing more of that these days. Sean, I know that you have been spending a lot of time uh, fielding questions and giving advice on the impact of economic sanctions and what they mean to corporations who want to do business, you know, globally and particularly, obviously, in jurisdictions where the sanctions are uh, at issue. And wanted to ask you a bit about what you're seeing in that area. And obviously, you know, it seems to be changing daily and new sanctions and what you're seeing on the ground because clients are calling you to obviously get your advice on these questions. I uh, would love to get your perspective on uh, on the front lines as you deal with advising businesses that are working in jurisdictions where sanctions are applicable. Yeah, so what we're seeing these days um, really is that there's been a significant sea change since February 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine. There's been sanctions on Russia going back to 2014 in respect of the earlier invasion of Crimea and then later its annexation. And they they were somewhat tightened in the intervening years. But after February 24th, Canada, in conjunction with many of its allies, started imposing more and more broad-reaching and strict sanctions on Russia, which, which really continues pretty much to this day. I mean, every few days, there's another amendment to the rules regarding Russia, which basically uh, make it or, or add more people to designated persons lists or otherwise impose new restrictions on the ability of Canadians to have commercial dealings with Russia. So we're, we're seeing a lot of that. Canada does maintain sanctions against many other countries under, there's a number of different statutes there, including the Sergei Magnitsky law, which is intended to be used for against individuals in relation to human rights violation or gross corruption. So there's, there's a wide wide-ranging group of laws there. So what we're seeing in the last three-plus months really are, firstly, many, many questions about Russia. Uh, and it could be things from commercial rela- ongoing commercial relationships, Russians who may have interests in Canadian businesses, looking forward, the ability to transact with Russians. That's really what the focus has been lately. Uh, secondly, we're seeing businesses that perhaps haven't been doing all that much on sanctions compliance, but they're now deciding that now's the time to update or implement a sanctions compliance program. 
And then thirdly, I, I think I'd say, you know, we, we practice Canadian law, but in the sanctions area, many things are happening in the US, the UK and the EU in particular, imposing new sanctions. And there's a lot of interplay there, or, or I suppose more accurately, a lot of businesses potentially have to worry about more than one set of laws. So we've been seeing a fair bit of that as well. And I mean, from your perspective on the ground, and I noticed it in my practice too, I mean, you're seeing clients who maybe want to look at an acquisition that has assets or business in Russia or in a country that has sanctions or trying to enter into some commercial relationship with either an actor or a country that's being sanctioned. And I mean, what are the options? Like, What can or can't people do in these circumstances? I know I've seen clients who literally tell sellers you have to divest, uh, you know, they won't buy it. Is it black and white? Is there any kind of flexibility when you're dealing with these countries in terms of doing business at the moment? Well, a lot of it, there's really two things there. One of which is, can the transaction be done lawfully? And that is sort of black and white. I mean, sometimes there's interpretation questions there. But if the transaction can be done lawfully, there are still uh, people who are backing away from transactions because they don't know, in particular regarding Russia, let's say, because they don't know where things are going and the perceived political risk of doing business with Russia goes up, including potentially being exposed to Russian laws that may implicate the transaction or ultimately their business. But o- over the last few years, there's been more and more in the context of M&A transactions, there's been more and more focus on diligence to see if the businesses, the target business is in compliance, substantial compliance or complete compliance with economic sanctions laws. And in the context of Russia now, that's becoming more of an acute question. And it's also being figured out a little bit more in real time, because you have to remember that there are businesses that prior to February 24th or, or, or some later date when some Russian person got sanctioned had completely lawful dealings with Russia and now has an ongoing commercial relationship that has elements uh, that are prohibited under Canadian law. So in, in an M&A space, you could have a few things going on at the same time. The target business trying to figure out whether it's in compliance and second of all, the purchaser diligencing it. And then thirdly, you've got, uh, if, if there's going to be a financing of some sort, typically there's a lot of examination given to, to sanctions compliance there. I mean, in many ways over the last number of years, uh, the financing has, financing considerations have really driven it in part because often there's banks involved in really focusing on uh, economic sanctions compliance. So it's sort of a multifaceted issue, but the core of it is, you know, what are the target businesses' commercial dealings with countries or persons who may be sanctioned and then determining whether or not it's lawful. And if it's not lawful, yes, then often a buyer is going to want to see it resolved in some manner that the, certainly the unlawful conduct stopped. And then consideration is given to, well, what's the potential exposure from it? How much investigation do we need to do to figure out that we actually know the scope of the unlawful conduct? Uh, because that's all going to go into negotiating the agreement, including indemnity and things like that. In your experience, Sean, I mean, have you seen people find workarounds? Are, are there 
are there options to deal with these Russian assets or is the general approach just stay away because it's just too uncertain at the moment? If there's unlawful conduct, there, in other words, if, if there's a prohibited dealing, like let's say if there's a Russian customer that's a designated person, it's just prohibited for a Canadian anywhere or any person in Canada to deal with that person. So there isn't really a workaround except uh, potentially obtaining a permit. So, for example, the Russian regulations uh, have associated with it a permit authorization order that allows the Minister of Foreign Affairs to issue a permit to do things that are prohibited by the regulations. But in the case of Russia, uh, the chances of obtaining a permit are probably not very good. I mean, it's certainly factually driven, but typically we don't see permits used in a kind of a transaction timeline because it would take time to obtain and there's no certainty that it's going to come. So so the focus is really going to often more be on if there's a problem ongoing, stop it. And second of all, figure out what the A, that we know the scope, B, what's the exposure from it, and then negotiate the agreement around those considerations. I know, Sean, that in uh, my practice, sometimes I deal with clients who don't even know or they're surprised that they need to comply. And I, I wonder you know, we've talked about it in the context of an M&A transaction or a context of kind of knowing because you want to engage in some type of activity. But I'm also starting to see clients who kind of, it almost hits them that they're caught by some direct or indirect activity that they never thought was caught. Then I, I wonder if you see in that too, and uh, if a lot of that is coming about where you have examples of clients who didn't even realize they're caught and then find out they have to, that they have to deal with this. Yeah, it's not uncommon for businesses to discover that some part of the business has engaged in conduct that's prohibited under some sanction law. You know, it's important to keep in mind here that in Canada, these laws are criminal. So there, there is no administrative enforcement of it uh, like there is in some other jurisdictions like the U.S. Rather, it's either it's criminal conduct or it isn't. So, and, and that comes from the... In, in the case of the Special Economic Measures Act, which is the statute under which the Russian sanctions are enacted, in order for the prosecutor to prove a crime, the prosecutor has to prove a knowing violation, which means that the prosecutor has to prove criminal intent, which, which doesn't mean that the business has to have intended to violate the law, but it does mean that in circumstances where there's uh, a truly inadvertent breach, so we're not talking about a case where there's willful blindness, which could amount to criminal intent, uh, but where there is clearly inadvertent conduct and it's cleaned up quickly and it doesn't involve you know, very sensitive things like nuclear technology or something like that, then often there would, it, it's unlikely that there'd be a criminal prosecution at the end of the day, provided that you know, things were dealt with appropriately. I mean, you, you've been working in this area a long time, Sean. Obviously, it's an intense moment for economic sanctions. And I'm going to get your sense. I mean, where can this go? Are we at the kind of, what's the word, top of the mountain when it comes to economic sanctions? Or, or is there still a lot of potential areas where this can go? I'm curious to get your perspective on other things people should get ready for if this really becomes more intense or, or they want to impose even more. I wanted to get your sense and just to kind of give people a heads up of how far this could go. I think we're only partway up the mountain. And there's a couple reasons for that. In the case of Russia, uh, sticking with the uh, most 
topical jurisdiction, it just seems very unlikely that Canada's foreign policy stance, which really drives its sanctions, is going to change anytime soon because it seems unlikely that Russia's stance regarding Ukraine is going to change anytime soon. So I don't see them, I don't see sanctions going away. It's possible that one or two persons who are designated will find, you know, will get themselves off the list because they'll show that they're not allied with the current Russian government, for example. But for the most part, I think those sanctions are staying and the, the trend is for the last well, since February 24th, is to keep adding more, and other jurisdictions are doing that. That, But there's other jurisdictions we should pay attention to. Iran, where which, at least in the past, there's you know been significant business relationships between Canada and Iran. A lot there turns on what the Iranian government does uh, in the coming uh, months and year. Uh, I do think that that's a if, if Iran continues on its track, I don't see Canada's stance changing on that. And so we could see more sanctions there. But the really big development, I think, is a bill before Parliament that is, uh, if passed, will allow for the forfeiture of assets of designated persons. So what that is, is Bill C-19. Uh, it's currently before the House of Commons, passed second reading. It's in committee at the moment. Uh, will allow, well, it'll create a new provision that will require a court to make an order of forfeiture if two conditions are satisfied. The first is the person subject to the forfeiture order has been named in a regulation or the, or the property has been required to be seized in a regulation made by the Canadian government. And secondly, that it's the property in question. So in other words, the government would not have to prove in order to get a forfeiture order that the person whose property is in question has been involved in the war in Ukraine or is a supporter of the Russian government or is an ally of the current president of Russia or any test, really. It's, it's simply the government, having made the order, can basically would be able to get the result of forfeiture. So it's, it's basically prescription and uh, quite a radical step. Uh, of course, we'll see what happens if the law passes and there's ultimately an application. I'm sure it would be resisted. Uh, and perhaps a judge would find defects in the law as it's currently reflected in this bill. But th that would be a pretty big step. Obviously, this is an area that's very dynamic, but I wanted to get your perspective on on where things can go in that sense. You know, we talked a bit about that already, but from the sense of a business, I mean, are we, for example, an M&A transaction is going to start seeing diligence in these areas? Are, are we going to have to start instead of kind of back end loading this where we talk about a compliance program, uh, but are we going to have to start front ending even before people look in, into in getting into a transaction where they, they actually start asking more questions about this, and have to dig down deeper? Well, it's a smart move for businesses that could be involved in M&A, particularly in the target side, but also on the buyer side, particularly if they're going to pay in whole or in part with shares. Uh, it is smart to try to get ahead of this because it's not optimal to find some kind of regulatory compliance issue in the context of a diligence process because they're very hard to... Uh, quickly investigate so that the, the ambit of the problem and its potential uh, magnitude in relation to the value of the transaction is known. 
So I would say that's true, not just for sanctions, but other areas such as anti-corruption would be a, a good example there. Export controls is something as well for countries that export things that are controlled. What One thing we often see on so, for software companies is they've never given any real thought to it. And if they use encryption technology, then there's the potential for surprises there on the question of whether they actually are involved in a controlled product where they need to have an export permit in order to send software outside of Canada. So I, I think it's a good idea to get on top of it. Not every business has considerable risk in these areas. Many of them have little or no risk in these areas. And so often it's in the, in the context of a compliance process, if someone comes to us and says, hey, can you help us figure out whether we are, whether our processes or compliance programs are up to date and reasonably good shape? The, the first question is, of course, or the answer is, of course, but the first question is, we look at the business and do a risk-based approach to see you know, based on what we've seen in the past and what the law is, what are the what are the regulatory areas that actually are of concern to this business? It, it's kind of the same thing that happens on a diligence process where we're not going to diligence everything infinitely. There's no point in it. There's a, it's, it's always a risk-based approach looking at a business and saying, what are the areas of compliance that are most likely relevant to it? And then doing whatever reasonable diligence is required based on A, the nature of the business and what the initial responses might be to diligence questions. So you have to take a pragmatic approach to it, but that's where I think people that have been through this enough times, you know, we can fairly quickly cut to the chase and what really is relevant and needs to be looked at. And you hit on where I wanted to go. I mean, we obviously talked about the M&A element of it, but for a business today, is compliance programs going to become kind of par for the course uh, particularly, particularly for businesses that sell overseas, and and frankly, you know, with a uh, an environment where more and more businesses are selling overseas on the web or or you know indirectly through distributors, is this going to become something that you know it's not just for large companies, but even for for mid-sized companies or smaller companies who do kind of global activity is just going to become part of their uh, corporate governance. Yeah, so par for the course right now is at least having thought about it, right? At least having, for a business to have at least turned its mind to, are we doing the things we ought to be doing in terms of complying with sanctions laws and other laws? And then what's appropriate for any business, and I don't, yes, larger businesses may have more elaborate programs, but mid-sized and smaller ones, many of them have programs as well. Maybe not the full suite because maybe they're, they're going to have they're going to take a more pragmatic approach and focus on the key areas uh, that apply to them. And then typically what it looks like is there'll be some kind of compliance uh, policy. Uh, Typically longer is not good because you want people to read it. So typically we try to make them concise uh, when we're asked to be involved in it. And then often there's some kind of compliance training in the key areas where, which typically involves something like a seminar or a webinar, some kind of interactive thing for, for the key employees who actually are in a position to where their activities could be relevant to one or more compliance areas. So I, I'd say that, you know, it's, it's definitely an evolving landscape that we've seen over the last few years, but I think now at least having thought about it and having at least implemented something in the core areas is 
probably the minimum standard, which isn't to say that it needs, you know, it doesn't need to be super painful, but it, it does need to be done because the, the, the flip side is when it's not done and the business inadvertently walks itself into a regulatory problem, A, it's got the problem, which can take a lot of time to resolve, especially if there's a law enforcement investigation. Even an internal investigation that's conducted by the company and its counsel can take a lot of time and resources. Uh, and if, and at the same time, the company needs a refinancing or has an M&A opportunity to then be scrambling around then and dealing with it, it's really not optimal. Sean, it's been a, a pleasure to have you as our guest. Uh, and this is not an area where a lot of people have a lot of experience. And so having your insights has been super helpful and, and super appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on, Mario. I really appreciate it.